it's a diff bit difficult because uh, you have searching time for that client to do what he need, his needs are. And sometimes that time is not enough because you, when you go, you don't know how the client is. Sometimes he's too weak. Sometimes the precise time for him isn't enough. Sometimes it will be a, a chaotic and sometimes you can't get there uh, at that time. And uh, this is panics all your routine, the other clients, because the time will be always late. Hello, you're listening to an Media special podcast as part of our decade project. That's our look into the future that opens out wide in front of us, funded by the RLS UK office. Uh, I am James Butler, and I am joined in our South London studio on an overcast Monday morning by... Craig Gent. And... Sophie Hemery. Both of whom have been uh, doing some intrepid reporting in the world of care uh, and about the future of care work, which is what we're going to discuss today, and you'll be hearing lots of voices from across the sector uh, in ways that may be surprising to you. I think I was certainly surprised by some of the stuff I got to hear. Okay, uh, my name is Shraga Farah. Uh, I started care five years ago. So um, when I started, I, I just needed some work and I started just uh, the one was uh, in front of me and available, it was care. But as uh, years, uh, and I understood how and how it, uh, to do it, I become to love it and I wouldn't be uh, want to change it anymore. So it's not difficult as you think, but it needs a bit of patience and it needs uh, someone to be caring and precise. You need to be a bit uh, accurate or what do you say? value it to do it properly and to care for people so i start really early when nursery first opens so i get there for breakfast lucy is a nursery worker who's been a nursery assistant for over a decade and is now a nursery nurse uh, which she says has entailed a slight pay rise but not much more than minimum wage still uh, she works at one of the two super chain nurseries that are potentially coming to take over the uk childcare sector and um, we should say that Lucy's voice has been disguised because she was concerned about identification. So you have to make sure that there is breakfast there ready waiting. Do the health and safety checks in the rooms. Make sure that all the safety things are in place. Um, and then, yeah, so we'll do breakfast. And then after breakfast, we'll do, because um, I'm in the preschool room at the moment, we'll do a carpet time and do some letter and number activities whilst we're on the carpet and do the calendar and then we'll have some free play or we might work with our key group on something specific after that. Um, and then maybe go outdoors before lunch and then we'll have lunch time. Um, so we'll serve the food as well and then sort out staff lunches as well. Um, and then again, after tea, um, we'll do either free play or specific activities with our key groups. Towards the end of the day, have some like quiet time on the carpet waiting for the parents to pick up. 
I think a lot of parents think private nurseries are a bit like conveyor belts. I've heard that term from parents before um, because they just get the children in. Like They're all about them making money, so they get the children in um, and then they just keep piling the children in. Um, and it's more about making money than it is like making the keeping the children happy kind of thing. Hi, my name's Alison Treacher. I work in a national mental health charity. I work across three 24-hour supported accommodations and I'm a shop steward with Unite. So I mean, I, I work shift work at the moment, um, but normally I do a 10-6 because I'm supposed to be off rota because I'm an addition to the recovery workers in the service. So because I'm the senior practitioner, it's kind of my job to help them when they're stuck with support and also offer additional kind of training needs um, and just, um, yeah, additional support across the services. So I kind of get in at 10, handover is from 11 till 12. That's where we kind of communicate what's going on in the building, any, uh, what the support needs are, any risks in the building. I also have uh, my own kind of caseload, um, and normally they're kind of the more complex um, kind of cases. And I don't really like using the word cases, but you know, they have more complicated needs and we work in systems. And so sometimes that can be difficult. So I do do a bit of that too. So I do individual support, but I am there just mainly to support the staff. Um, obviously we look after the maintenance of the building, support people with their tenancies, benefits, try and keep ancient buildings going um yeah there's a dire need for better buildings um do you enjoy it yeah yeah i do i do there's a lot there's a lot of love for what i do um i think it's really important it's really fulfilling and i find it a privilege to work alongside some wonderful people back home you we care of uh, family we care of you even uh, your aunt, your grandmother, we used that since we were born. So we had since we were little. So it's something, something in my nature. And at the end, I found it in here in this job. Uh, it's a worrying to take care of people. You know, you you don't only get money. It's it's blessed. It's something blessed. So God will help you because you're helping them. You take care of them, one day someone will take care of you. So, here it's, uh, it's uh, you have someone else taking care of you. Rarely you find someone uh, from the family taking care of the person. Back home, we don't, you don't pay, no one pays. Because, uh, it's something you've grown with, you, you take care of anyone elder. Even if, if it's an auntie, if it's a grand, if, if it's not your parents, you take care of them. You just do. So uh, here, different is its paid. There does seem to be, you know, lots of ground that people are very careful while covering, like careful to kind of distinguish between, you know, experiences they found unpleasant, but, you know, people they were caring for or supporting. And, and I guess that, that also, I mean, it touches on one of the other questions that I was wondering about, which is about the vocabulary that people used. And the way in which that, that reflected, you know, the way they were thinking about their work. Mm, yeah, language that came through strongly in, in lots of the interview was language around emotions, feelings, attachments, um, and the inevitability of there being um, a certain intimacy to the work um, and having 
your emotions tied up in it to a certain extent? Obviously, I love working with children because that's why I do the job that I do. Um, I do find it really rewarding. I love doing activities with the children, uh, particularly when um, when I realise that they've actually learnt something. It's really rewarding. You know, when a parent comes to you and says, oh, they've been talking about this today and they tell me that you, that you taught them this and now they can do this and, and that's really nice. And I enjoy building relationships with the parents um, and, and I think I'll miss that with, like, with this COVID thing that parents aren't allowed in the building anymore. So you don't get that those little chats at the end of the end of the day with the parents when they come to pick up. So I think that's really sad. But yeah, um, I mean, I do enjoy it. I just think we're quite underappreciated. <laughs> so I think the population is split, right? <laughs> Half of us are zombies. I feel, you know, I, I feel like a personal toll. I feel like tired from the heart um, and stressed and worried. And I think that I come out of work and it impacts on relationships and maintaining really important ones. I don't think this is exclusively just women, but you know, we come, we go into work doing really emotionally intensive work and coming out of work and worrying about our families, our elderly parents who can't get shopping, um, trying to coordinate that, those support systems. Um, and then also having to provide joy as well. So ensuring that I am there for my mum and dad at their family quiz once a week when, you know, each time it comes around, I can't believe it's been a week um, because I feel like I haven't left the project. So yeah, it's been tough. There was a general sense that the pandemic had led to care work being more valued and respected. And I think some people were feeling hopeful because of this, um, that potentially society was going to revalorize the the work as essential and potentially I mean yeah maybe this could lead to a scenario where people think about social reproduction and how vital it is for the functioning of our society as it currently works. I've been there so long and I've seen so many staff come and go partly because of pay but that's like across across nurseries it's not great pay anyway um, and then I just think people often don't feel appreciated recently. I think pe- people have realised that jobs like ours um, are really needed, um, like with this COVID situation, where there was a real need for some people to have that childcare in place. Um, people really struggled. We kind of do the same jobs as they do in schools and in the foundation stage in schools, and they get paid a lot more than we do. It's a zero-hour contract, yes, yes. For me, I don't have uh, much choice on it uh, because, um, because I have other things to do. And on the other hand, it's, uh, it can be difficult because sometimes you won't find the hours that will cover all your uh, that you need. But for me, I don't have a choice. Uh, I, can't, I can't be in a permanent contract. So, uh, and since this pandemic, things have totally changed. Uh, for us to wear the mask, and oh, we always used to wear these aprons and use the gloves on all these, but the other PPE, like mask, 
who face uh, shield all these are new for us and uh, so uh, now things is a bit uh, tense and you have to be careful all the time for your sake and for the client so obviously the the, the manual side of the job has increased so obviously keeping the uh, buildings clean, ensuring that you're constantly having conversations because, you know, sometimes the pandemic can slip out your mind, but then, you know, we really need to keep it in the fore to keep our staff safe, but also those who, who live there. So that's been um, a constant communication. As soon as the pandemic hit, you know, I kind of went in full steam blazing, like uh, we needed to put in local uh, policy and procedure about how we're going to manage um, support, what does support look like, how can we be more creative about ensuring people have that support. But as the pandemic has gone on, and I think it's probably different for mental health services, the isolation and the containment of the pandemic has really come into the fore. Our communities are a rich source of therapy and involvement and being isolated and denied that is very difficult for people who haven't experienced extreme trauma. Um, and so that is really beginning to play out. I think some people don't realise that we're not paid that well um, because sometimes, sometimes you might get have a conversation with a parent and it, and it comes up um, or some, a parent might find out that, that we're not paid so well and, and they'll ask us and then they're like really shocked because they're aware of how much they're paying and about how much we do in the day. I don't know if some people realise that we we, like we do so such long days, obviously if they've not used a nursery then we do long days, we, we serve food, we change nappies um, and then we do all the learning side of it as well. So it is quite a hard job. There is a union where we work. Yes, yeah, so um, it's Unite the Union. Um, so we've had full recognition for about eight years. It was making me furious. <laughs> Just um, the lack of organisation, the attacks on our terms and conditions. And I didn't feel that, I think organising for me was the best therapy. It was, you know, drawing that line in the sand of saying, you know, these jobs are unacceptable. You know, we need change. When I first started at the nursery, People used to say to me that we're not allowed to be in a union. And at the time, I didn't really know of what unions were about or anything. So I didn't really understand that. But, <laughs> yeah, and I've never heard anyone else talking about um, being in a union since I've been there, which is strange. I, I don't know where it came from, but someone said that oh, we're not allowed. <laughs> People are tired. I think that the role makes people tired. I think that with the high density of women who are doing more social reproductive labour, I think that, you know, if you're a mum and then somebody comes up and says, well, 
well, you know, this in your workplace isn't right. There's a kind of survival mode, and that's what happens on poverty wages. You know, you, you, people can't look to uh, collective action when it's just trying to get through, and that's uh, a problem. So social reproduction is a very complex term because it has these various shades of meaning and kind of various shades of historical meaning. Um, in, in its kind of wider sociological sense, it, it describes the way in which a society reproduces over time. So it's a way um, in which kind of existing social relations come to be maintained from generation to generation. In this sense, it has its roots uh, in Marx, who's interested primarily in economic reproduction. And so he's interested in the cycle of work, the cycle of you know, actual labour, then sale and kind of consumption of a good, a commodity. Um, but but and and the way in which that cycle then kind of repeats itself. But he points out, you know, for that cycle to exist, there's got to be some process that reproduces both the voluntary and involuntary relationships among people as a whole, um, and that might include the maintenance of class relations by force. So, for instance, the police, um, but perhaps also by the ways in which we're educated, or even the softer ways. Um, in, in which our culture is structured. So that's, that's the classic thing. That's Marx saying he recognises there's something really substantial and really quite important outside of like a very, very constricted concept of the economic cycle. Um, so that ensures that it can keep happening uh, more or less in the way it does. Right, and so later, Marxist feminists take up this insight and say, hmm, well, uh, this sounds sort of familiar because they say, so actually the way in which social re relations are reproduced over time doesn't just rely on big social institutions like the police or like the education system, like schools, but surely and very obviously on domestic work, which is usually and certainly historically done by women. And that's from things, uh, you, know, very, you know, that are very obvious. So you get the development in Marxist feminism, especially uh, accented uh, from the 70s onwards, attention to the way in which the labour force depends on work that is largely done at home, from food preparation to cleaning to child raising to less tangible kind of emotional and caring work. And this is also something that sort of starts to happen and continues to happen, or this attention happens, at a time of kind of massive expansion of the labour force, the entry of women into the world of work, uh, and also a wages crisis. So, um, you know, many more women enter the workforce partly for progressive reasons, uh, right? People are being emancipated from traditional gender roles, um, but are also impelled to do so by a downward pressure on wages. And as a consequence of that, you get attention to concepts like the second shift, um, which is this kind of gendered expectation that women, largely women, will come home from work to do effectively uh, a second shift at home. Now, obviously, there are lots of things that kind of spring off from here. One of the big political controversies on the left that it brings people face to face with is, you know, what counts as work and what doesn't count as work. And that's a question that becomes kind of more pressing as work that had once been done in a family structure, um, which you might said, had, you know, has a dimension of oppression in itself. Right. If you have an expectation in your own family that you're, you have to do this kind of work, whether you're suited to it or not, or whether it's kind of emotionally devastating for you or not. Um, you know, that enters then becomes kind of subsumed under a kind of employment or a waged uh, uh, relation. I just wanted to go back to this this theme that came up with people saying that um, they really loved the work and that they had uh, an emotional investment in the work and whether we should see care work as different um, somehow to other forms of work and just kind of emphasise that it's such a heavily feminised sector and... I think we can't separate the fact that, yes, people are saying that they care 
in a in a non-professional sense as well as a professional sense but it's also true that under capitalism it, this is work and much of it is unpaid work um which allows capitalism to continue um and that this language of um this work is in my nature or you know i do this because i love it and i care and this is just who i am kind of thing is just heavily gendered i think a lot of that does come from this idea that it's natural for women to be caregivers and that is also leading to higher levels of exploitation in care work because there's an expectation that women should want to be doing this work for free So um, I'm really critical of the word care. I would always use support. Um, you know, we don't care for people. And, you know, using that language kind of says that people are inherently vulnerable when, you know, they're not. Our society makes people vulnerable by the lack of services and opportunities and access. I'm Jamie Hale. I work freelance in health and social care policy and as a creative poet, actor, writer, etc. Um, I also have a 24-hour care package. So I've had 24-7 care since November of last year. I tend to prefer to refer uh, to the people that I employ to manage my care needs as personal assistants rather than carers, because I feel like it reframes the dynamic from a sort of benevolence of them coming in to care for me to an independence of me directing my assistant to support me in the ways I need. But I'm also very aware that the phrase personal assistant has a different meaning outside the disabled community. I think, you know, you can kind of split care into caring for and caring about. And I think the latter is a place where a lot of our society is at. We do care about each other. We've seen this in mutual aid. We've seen this by the shift in priorities during the pandemic. People are recognising that care for each other, our families, our loved ones, our network is the most important work that there is. And inherently, the word care isn't bad. But social care has become so narrowed into a service provision or an industry as opposed to um, a human need, a human right. And a lot of social care remains invisible. A lot of the chunk of social care is working with uh, people with impairments, disabled people. These aren't vulnerable people. They don't need to be cared for uh, no more than you or I. They need support to access and to liberation. The power differentials are very different from most other industries because disabled people can't decide to stop needing care. Yeah. So there's that constant reliance on the supply of carers for disabled people where there is no option to exit that power relation. Um, that a carer could find a job in a different field if they were really uncomfortable with the way the power dynamics were working for them. And I know many people who have been carers and who've left the field, either because of the way they were exploited or because they felt that they were being forced to be complicit in the exploitation of disabled people. I'm really lucky to have direct payments, which is a funding model 
in which all of the responsibility for the care package is devolved to me. So in many ways, that is a cost-cutting measure for NHS bodies and councils that fund care because agency rates, an agency will often charge the council £26 an hour, whereas if you are using carers yourself, you in this area, you're generally paying around £10.50 an hour, um, sometimes less. Autonomy and choice should be available, but that doesn't necessarily mean it can't be collective. And that's what I was kind of talking about, you know, the neoliberalisation of care provision. So it's all it's individualised to the nth degree. The key buzzwords that the council or NHS would use are choice and control. But that is basically what it comes down to. If I employ people myself, I can decide who's in my house and when and exactly what they're doing. With agency carers, it's quite common for you never to have met the person coming in before, for them maybe to have read a three-line care plan about you but not know anything about you or your specific needs. I've had very bad experiences with agency carers. I've had good experiences with a couple of agency carers. But with an agency, the disabled person has no real power or leverage in the situation because the agency is generally commissioned by the council or NHS. So you can't tell the agency, well, I'm withdrawing my money unless you give me somebody who meets these requirements. So you have very little say in how the care is delivered. Yes, there should be that level of autonomy and decision, but could that be, does that have to be through a personal broker system or could that be of a more collective nature, a community nature? Could more than three people share personal packages to, you know, like, let's think creatively. I empathise, but don't think that we can just rest on that because it has severe impacts for the workers where we're supposed to be in partnership. Once you are completely reliant on another person to meet your basic needs, most systems that come in to control that end up being oppressive. So whether it's the constant justification of providing a five minute breakdown over a 48 hour period of exactly what you were doing when, whether it's the knowledge that to someone somewhere, you are a budget line on a page that has to be made to add up correctly, or whether it's navigating the complex relationship dynamics between you and the people that you employ, it's difficult for the relationship not to be oppressive. There's, for me, there is a very much an awareness that however good the people I employ are, if I did something that pissed them off, I would be completely vulnerable to them. And whether they were just like walking out because they had too much and wanted to take 20 minutes to de-stress or what, I would, I'm just in a very, very vulnerable position, which is not the usual position of the employer to employee. It sort of turns that on its head because ultimately I, the employer, am more vulnerable to them, the employee, than they are to me. Typically the employee is far more vulnerable than their employer because their employer, with the power to hire and fire, could fire them and cut off their income, forcing them to try and find another job at very short notice. But ultimately, my vulnerability goes beyond that, because it is a literal physical vulnerability that, without their care and support, I would rapidly end up seriously ill, critically ill in hospital. So, 
while I am very painfully aware every time I do the rotor and decide who to give what hours to, that this is an oppressive act in many ways, I'm also very aware that I am incredibly vulnerable to these people and that there are power dynamics in which they massively outstrip me. Without the knowledge that at the root of it all is also an issue of consent, we're not going to get anywhere. And I think consent is often missed from discussions about care. That my care protocols involve very, very significant intimate personal care, including things that would, in other industries and under other conditions, be perceived of as things that could fall under a sexual banner as well, just because of the degree of medical involvement in my body now. And what this comes down to for me is the right to consent to the choice of person, not to simply be told that I will have to be exposed to whichever stranger the agency sends, but that I can actively consent to support from one person. And with these medical procedures, I can't merely decide I'll leave it for another day when someone I prefer is working. It is essential that it is done every day. And I want to have, I want to be able to give or withhold consent. And with all types of intimate personal care, you come down to a level of consent, which is often missing from these discussions. And if we don't think about that model as part of it, then we're going to miss a huge part of the dynamic and a huge part of the intercommunity trauma that people have from being repeatedly exposed to situations like that with no choice. My name's Veronica and I've been a nanny for eight years. Um, I also do a bit of writing and, and sort of research on the side. Um, so currently I work uh, in South East London as a nanny for three families, so that's seven kids. Um, and I also am the co-founder and director of the Nanny Solidarity Network, CIC, um, which is a mutual aid group uh, that provides sort of financial and, and social support to nannies and we ran a hardship fund during lockdown which raised sort of £9,000 which was amazing and we were able to give out hardship payments to nannies who had been made jobless or homeless and from there we've been able to build a real community of nannies and we are basically all working together now to form an official union branch with the IWGB. As we were giving out hardship payments, you know, we were creating these one-to-one -one relationships with the nannies. We were we were helping, you know, we were meeting them through through WhatsApp. We were calling them. We were checking in on them, seeing how they were. And I think being able to extend that kind of support really built a lot of trust quite quickly. When you were a pair, you live with a family. And when you were nanny, you have like more your life. You don't need to live with a family. Like when you, when you are live out, of course. Uh, you need, you can have your house, go have a rest at the end of the day, uh, have your room. Hadassah is an undocumented migrant au pair and nanny from Brazil. 
She came to the UK three years ago to work cash in hand as an au pair. It was the first time she'd left Brazil. And she expressed to me that she was unaware of how untenable the job would be financially and emotionally um, when she came. She was pretty optimistic. But she had a really difficult experience with the first family that she worked for. It was countryside. I was working more than 12 hours per day and just received um, 120 a week. And like, it's quite hard to go to London. Just the travel, the ticket travel was 20 pounds more than my salary. So I was like, I won't be here. I don't want to be here. I got quite depressed in that moment. Au pairs are, are largely incredibly poorly paid, whereas if you get a private live-out nanny, you do see good wages. It used to be that ultra-high net worth and high net worth families were choosing nannies because of obviously the prestige, but also the flexibility. Nannies are usually paid more than nursery workers. So it's gone from nannies being a sort of sense of, of like a, a, a token of prestige or, or um, keeping up with the Joneses to a real necessity for wraparound care. That doesn't necessarily mean it's affordable, though, because when I started, I was working for like ultra rich families. And now I work for, you know, lower middle and middle class families that can't necessarily afford me, but need need nursery, like need care. I work for people in the NHS who just who just needs someone to take care of their kids. They may not have family close by. So um, in that way. I think that you can really see where a lack of government subsidy has really affected people because it's not that um, people can necessarily afford nannies and they couldn't before. It's that there's there's increasingly fewer options. You're an immigrant. Like, you don't have the papers, you don't have anything. And the most of the girls come here, like, they don't have a family here as well. So it's quite hard. So, yeah, you face more barriers because most of the families look for, like... Um, a British or a, um, EU nannies because they have the help from the governor or the company. So to find the, like a cash in hand job is more difficult, but it's not it's not hard hard. It's difficult. This three last one I found through my my host mom. The other ones like I found them um, care dot com childcare. Um, bubble and yeah. I moved here when I was 20 so I moved here four years ago and childcare in Australia is different to childcare in the UK but from what I can see it has there's been a real push for um, formalization and regularization of the sector um, in the nanny sector um, similar to how childminders are regulated over the past five years but what that's meant is a lot of nannies who carry you know inherent privilege with them as sort of set nannies who are British citizens or of settled status pushing for everyone to be regularised and um, kind of dismissing the the need um, for us to have an informal economy. And also um, a lot of the groups that are pushing for this regularisation um, really love to play up the angle of... Uh, they really like to play on parents' fears in that they will talk about safeguarding and you don't know who's really looking after your kids. And not only is this sort of inherently... Um, again, inherently xenophobic, um, it is It is also just... It's, it's, it's a really dangerous narrative to have because, it, 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 you know, the, the, I think 
I might be wrong on this stat, but I think it's something like 30% of our of the uh, non-agricultural GDP of the UK is, is, is the informal economy. And so it exists and we can't pretend it doesn't exist. And what we're doing when we push for regularization, when we don't have um, like a, a, a simultaneous relaxation in, in migration laws, we have people who, who need to work and they're not, you know, because of hostile environment policies are unable to work legally. And then we're making it harder and harder for them to find work. So there's, I've seen, you know, it, the informal economy become a lot more difficult for nannies. But I've also seen, you know, push for regularization happen. It is frustrating because it often feels like uh, migrant nannies are being left behind. I think more, they're legally persons, we could like, give a big help because when you are illegal you're really scared to like do a lot of things you're scared you're scared to trust in people so i think it could help a lot so yeah and even that we don't have like someone to help the, the nannies or, or even that ones the ones who doesn't speak english or something like that or some some of them has a lot of doubt about how much should i charge or this kind of things you know like knowledge about the the area we had a lot of discussions and we had a vote quite early on to keep it just nannies no pairs at least for now just because i think for all of us we very much feel that there are there are unions that have all childcare workers under an umbrella and or all domestic workers and I think because nannies sit in such a specific space of like they their issues like they intersect with employment law housing law migration law in a way that not a lot of other sectors do it's I think we do need a space that's just for us because what happens is if you look at bigger unions like NEU where every, all the childcare workers and, and early years providers are lumped together nannies are kind of tacked onto the end but because they're the hardest to organize and the hardest to support there's often not a lot of um support provided for them because you know if you have someone coming in who's who's on the books on paye and their boss hasn't paid them that's a lot easier to deal with a nanny who's been working illegally living in a house and has suddenly been made homeless they have no recourse so it's you know the union is 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 just kind of backs away from from those from those cases so I think for us we're kind of like we need to have a space that's just ours and our focus is just nannies because no one else is helping us it's it's hard I've mentioned some of those those reasons before so it's fragmented it's outsourced it's uh doesn't directly challenge capital you know it's it's difficult people are knackered and that's that can be translated as passivity but it's not. <laughs> People are angry and it's about finding innovative ways to uh, catalyse that action. My perception is that the large trade unions broadly get it wrong um, in the sense that they're looking at, as a, looking at it as a traditional workplace where what you're aiming for is 100% union density so you can leverage that power against the employers without necessarily realising where the power dynamics actually lie in that situation. Also, I think it's difficult when you are a national organisation and a lot of the structures of the union and the supports of the unions are based around kind of workplace organising as opposed to in one place to a kind of traditional um, workplaces as opposed to such a galaxy. And you need people in those hollow structures screaming your cause. I would love to see a union emerging 
that was made up of disabled people and PAs and agency carers. But as a, as a group, it would be difficult. Um, but a lot of the demands would be the same. I'd love to be able to pay sick pay above statutory sick. And I'd love to be able to pay holidays above statutory minimum. And so those are campaigns that I would be very on board with as long as they didn't cut my care budget to find the money to do so. One of the things I struggle with most is that my life is somebody's workplace and it is not acceptable in the least to snap at a colleague. It's not acceptable to say, could you just leave me alone, please, in a furious tone. It doesn't create a happy, healthy workplace for them. It makes them feel unhappy and undermined. But it's also my life and everybody has grouchy days and days where they just want to be left alone. I've had to train all of that out of myself to always be able to be, at worst, slightly distantly polite when I'm upset about something and never to move into snapping at somebody or blaming them for something that isn't their fault because I don't want to create a hostile working environment. I don't want people feeling like they dread coming to work because I'm volatile or they don't know what to expect. So I end up putting an awful lot of work into self-control in order to make sure that I don't expose people to something that they feel unhappy with, that it is crucial to me that I have a good working relationship with my PAs. Intimate personal care becomes horribly uncomfortable if there's an elephant in the room and I know they're upset about something and they haven't said what. I can feel it and it makes the space absolutely horrible. So it's very important to me that I build and maintain positive, constructive and good working relationships with everyone because otherwise it makes things kind of unlivable for me. But the effort it takes to maintain those relationships when I'm in a bad mood or something's upset me or whatever is quite superhuman at times. I feel like the phrase emotional labour is massively overused and misused, but I also feel like actually to quite an extent it does describe or was intended to describe the labour of having to control one's own emotions and present a specific emotion. And I mean, I, I realise the same is true for the people I employ, that while they're at work, they are also generally trying to project that like positive, can-do, bright attitude, even if they're not feeling it. But the difference is that they're not at work 168 hours a week. I came away from speaking to Jamie and Ali in particular, uh, feeling that this brilliant idea for a national care service that people campaigned for in, in 2019 was actually sort of really half-baked. Um, and that, you know, it looks, it's, it's clearly seen the sort of slow-moving car crash of social care that we can, you know, we, we can see coming over the hill. Um, and even beginning to happen already. But without um, without really finding a way to bring concerns within the trade union movement and the concerns of the disabled people's movement together, then even, you know, that's just one part of obviously of wider social care, but it's significant enough that it clearly denotes that there's more thinking to do here about how workers' rights and disability rights um, are balanced together. Um, I found it very optimistic that for both Jamie and Ali, that was something they were clearly committed to. 
Well, I think a national care service solves part of the problem, but by no means the whole problem. So I, um, people often refer to the care industry and a national nationalising that and ensuring better terms and conditions for the workers will go part of the way of you know that defence against the financialisation and the kind of neoliberal um, isation of the way that care is provided via personal payments for example Um, but do I think I think it's too lazy to say ah a national care service isn't this brilliant isn't this finished when actually we need services embedded in our communities like accountable democratic services which have kind of true rich meaningful co-production at the heart of it we need to think about how we distribute kind of wealth and resources in in and we need to build a positive vision of what um, care could look like Um, because it's easy to fall back into protect the workers but actually care has always been broken it's broken in so many different ways um, that half of me is like scrap that let's let's you know push for an alternative vision of what care should be it's very important to be able to say care workers work but at the same time the nature of the work and of course you know even talking about care work as we've established is you're really referring to such a vast social enterprise that unites uh, not just so many sections of a formal uh, economy but also an informal economy but the way that trade unions often respond to workplaces particularly in general unions is to treat very different types of work as if they're all basically the same because they revolve around particular terms and conditions for example and it seems to me that to develop a a political response to to care that can come anywhere near close to matching the the scale of of the sector both formally and and informally there clearly needs to be far greater consideration than perhaps currently exists um, from I would say the formal labor movement to you know stakeholders in that collaborative endeavor whether it's about childcare or whether it's about independent living for adults the disabled people's movement would be one place to start um, but i think it would be interesting if if we were able to develop more creative ways of kind of uh, bringing about bonds of solidarity among very different groups who kind of all find themselves operating within this same terrain we can keep going with this and, and we can be successful with you know running organizing a union of, of largely informal workers and hopefully we can show that it can be done and you know if, if the government's not necessarily going to support these workers you know co- collectively we can support each other so i would really just love to see this keep happening i'd love to see um more sort of creative thinking around how we support informal workers um because like our economy doesn't function without them and and part of the reason that that you know laws aren't changing is is because the the government benefits from having people who who are easily exploited and i think 
you know, if we can if we can collectively support and keep providing mutual aid, you know, in place of a like relaxation of migration laws, like it would be it's it would be really great to show that, you know, um, if that's not going to be provided for us, we can provide that for one another. Lots of con- you know contemporary work and thinking on social reproduction is sort of interesting in the ways in which it sort of interfaces you know, with broader trends in the capitalist economy, concentration on less tangible and material forms of labour anyway, affective labour, things like that, kind of controversial field. And more concretely, it's often interested in the ways in which this work sort of interfaces, uh, you know, or, or when it enters the sphere of exchange, i.e. when people are paid for it, it often depends very heavily on super exploited um, or migrant labour. And so conversely, I think just here and there, there's also like, people increasingly concerned to try to slot these accounts of labour back into that original kind of, you know, knowledge or, or, or acknowledgement on, on, on the classical Marxist's part, that there is this kind of huge edifice of kind of reproductive labour that goes on outside of, of kind of the, what you might call the formal valorization process, right? The, 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 the kind of classic form of work um, and so try to to try to slot these back into a kind of wider account of how society is reproduced. The pandemic has shone a light on the uh, essential but largely invisible social care provision, um, huge sector with over one and a half million people working in it, but it just remains obscured and underrepresented. We're at a crossroads where radical change is needed. If the financialisation and neoliberal individualisation of social care continues, the future looks bleak for those requiring services, but also workers, as we'll see a continued squeezing of the workforce's terms and conditions. We need to articulate a different vision, a different way to organise society and redistribute wealth, one of which values socially useful work and moves away from seeing productive labour and profit margins as the, 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 the most important thing. I guess I would say for Ali, the the collaborative process of... Uh, supporting people who are you know in the care system um, extends towards how we might politically organize within the system as well. There is very little point in the people I employ organizing against me for higher wages because I have no power over the wages they're set for me. In a care agency there is more reason for the employees to organize against the agency for higher wages but often margins are very tight and the money comes from local government. Local government, in turn, has massively stretched budgets, of which a huge proportion already goes on adult social care. So rather than trying to organise in an agency-by-agency or area-by-area basis, what we need is a coordinated national organisation that recognises the importance for disabled people of choice and control, of dignity, of the right to live our lives the way we want, and for care workers the right to stability, a reliable income, a good working environment with an employer who understands their legal obligations and entitlements. But all of this requires a complete rethink of the industry, which cannot be done if we're just organising to strike against one agency for one pay rise for one group of carers. You might win that, but then what's going to happen is just that the agency is going to take on fewer council contracts because it doesn't have the money. You might might be able to persuade local government to increase the wages for PAs, but then what they're going to do is just give care to fewer people or give people less care to balance it. The only way of actually organising successfully 
by disabled people and care workers in a way that doesn't harm one of their interests to benefit the other yeah. is by looking at a clear national organisation that looks at the criminal underfunding of the industry and takes that as a starting point. I think my dream would be a national independent living service that made all care free at the point of access. If you get your care funded by the NHS, as I do, it's completely free. If it's funded by social care, you have to pay towards it. And they, while they can't take your earned money, they can take your benefits, which seems very backwards, but is the way that it is. So a national independent living service, which recognised all of the training needs for, for employers and employees to make sure that everyone was resourced adequately, that gave employers the skills to be good employers, such that if they were bad employers, it wasn't by accident, but by design. So I would see it either something that came about through the campaign for a proper national independent living service, which looked at things like care cooperatives, as well as direct payments, um, looked at how care could better be provided to people who are unable to manage their own care package without forcing them into an agency model, etc. Under the current government, I'd be surprised if we saw that come about. So I think the pressure there would need to come from a combined movement of disabled people passionate about independent living and carers passionate about independent living. We hope that as, as it grows, collective power spreads and our power dilutes. So I think it's been about just knowing that we can't necessarily speak for the nannies that we're supporting, that, um, for instance, when we started, we met we met a nanny who I don't want to name and she'd been running an in a WhatsApp of like something like 200 Brazilian nannies in London for two years. And every time they met a Brazilian nanny in the park, they didn't know they'd add her or, or him, but usually her. And they would, you know, they, they would answer questions. They would support each other. They would share jobs. And it was very much what we're doing now, but it was kind of like, come, we can't come in with the notion that, you know, we're going to come and organise these poor workers. It's like, well, everyone's already organising themselves. They don't They don't need us to organise them. What, what nannies need is they need to benefit from the platform that we have as sort of white nannies with secure status. And that means that we can basically kick the door open for them to then do all the, for them to then do what they're already doing. Um, so I think that's kind of where we sit. So I guess maybe like the, the question that's worth picking up on is just whether you have a, a sense coming out the other end of this is like, is it meaningful to talk about the care sector at all? I think it's, it is meaningful to talk about the care sector, but that it's clearly an extremely diverse and fragmented sector um, and increasingly so um, with the um, proliferation of um, privatization and all different parts of the sector um, and it's kind of extremely overworked and underpaid many women and migrant workers and mothers who are doing a second shift of similar work when they get home which I think means um, it's hard to unify it seems extremely hard to unify this sector and a lot of workers spoke to that um, I'm really interested in the potential of care workers and workers in other highly feminized sectors such as sex work being able to build collective power around a feminist struggle. So I suppose in challenging more traditional forms of trade unionism, I think it would be powerful to look at um, how 
There might be other forms of struggle that might be feminist struggle around women's strikes, building solidarity in like new ways around exploitation in paid and unpaid labor. I think it's really important that uh, we don't lose sight of struggles within this, this sector as a, as a social struggle. Um, I feel very conscious of the fact that historically care work, like other forms of feminized work, have had to fight very hard to be recognized as work um, within the left or, or within the institutions of the left. But, you know, we have to be aware of the fact that there is a risk that those struggles can then just end up being subsumed into the logics of the institutions of, of the left historically. So, for example, for trade unions to treat uh, care work as if it's any other sort of work is clearly inadequate because there's a massive social dimension to it that needs its own political strategy as well. There, there is something specific about care work, and yes, it is work, but it's also many other things because it means other things to other people. It really came out of the interviews for me the way what we think of as the care sector absolutely ripe for a wholly different vision of how things could be. Um, and, you know, seemingly populated full of people who all have ideas about how things could look otherwise. We care of a family, we care of you. Even uh, your aunt, your grandmother, we used that since we were born, so we had since we were little. So it's something, uh, something in my nature, and at the end I found it in here, in this job. Well, I think the migrants should, should fight more, like, should try to have more voice because I, like the migrants is more is scared like to show yourself and all of that i think we should find more for what we want it is it is a great job and it's a, it is a good place to work i hope that people realize how much we do basically and that um we should be paid a bit more for what we do